Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss what leadership looks like in the modern insurance business. We talk to insure tech leaders and founders, innovators and change agents from the insurance industry. We also talk to thought leaders from outside the industry, such as organizational psychologists, performance coaches and investment professionals. Anyone who can add value to the conversation on how to lead insurance businesses of the future. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership in Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond. I'm very lucky to be joined by both Jared Lee and Ben Rose of Superseed, um, the InsureTech formerly known as RiskBook. Um, more, hello, guys. How are you? I was about to say morning, but it's actually not our morning. We're saying morning on the podcast. It's the, uh, it's the ruse of the podcast. But I wanted to point out that it is actually five o'clock on a Friday evening because um, you will see that we are drinking throughout the podcast. Um, but it's uh, it's it's not because we're drinking on the job in the middle of the day it's because um you guys were kind enough to join me at this hour but how are you both getting on are you well yeah very well thanks for the digital equivalent of a, of a pub on a friday night so we appreciate it <laughs> yeah i hope it doesn't sort of descend into that sort of uh, pub atmosphere too much but um but yeah and uh, ben how are you you were silently sitting on mute there yeah, all, all very good. Glad to be uh, approaching the weekend. I've got a fun weekend ahead. Uh, we've got Lloyd's Lab pictures coming up and we have to record videos for it. So I'll be doing <laughs> video takes all weekend. Uh, yeah, no, exciting. Um, I'll be editing videos as well. So it'll be a very sort of a video heavy weekend. Um, uh, I thought I was going to be funny with the um, the InsureTech formerly known as a risk book and whether you were going to take the sort of Prince angle to everything. But um, <laughs> I, I'd quite like it if you introduced yourselves as that. Um, um, but um, before we get into the kind of name change, Ben, I think you've been nominated to do the kind of this is who we are at Supersede. Um, if you'd be so kind as to tell anyone who doesn't know who you are, um, yeah, what, what the business is and what you guys do. Yeah, absolutely. So Supersede, we're an independent reinsurance technology company. So we, we focus exclusively on reinsurance and we do it for all of the sort of key parties in the value chain, sedents, brokers and reinsurers across three main solutions. So firstly, we do the the pre-placement data preparation with what's known as analytics, uh, where we help sedents uh, and their brokers automate uh, the, the process of preparing and validating all of the outwards data that they have to present to the reinsurance markets. Mm-hmm. The, the second piece is mainly for brokers. It's the placement uh, platform. So we run a, a Lloyd's approved uh, reinsurance placement platform. Uh, and then the third piece is the world's largest global uh, reinsurance network where we have uh, now, 99 firms represented uh, from around the industry. We're just waiting for that press release uh, for us, us to go over 100. But we've got a yeah, huge number of individuals uh, building profiles, sharing their appetites and, and developing business digitally. And of course, while we watch things like Monte Carlo being cancelled for the second year in a row. So together, you can prepare your data ready for your, your business with analytics. Your brokers can place it with placements and you can find the right counterparties uh, in our global network. Uh, and together, that, that's supersede. Awesome, awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, there is a man who's uh, polished his pitch in front of a few investors in his time. Um, but uh, no, thank you for that. I, I suppose I wanted to get straight into the kind of the, the world of platforms, and I know it's kind of a, it's an element of what you guys do, and not the full you know the full gambit. Um, you know why 
I see platforms everywhere I look. Why, why do we need platforms? What, what's the kind of necessity um, for them? Um, I suppose I'm sounding like if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of way. And there's probably an obvious answer. But, you know, I suppose in the modern world, why, why now do you think we need them? Happy, happy to take this one as well, because there's a really good example. For, we've got lots of UK listeners probably, um, and, yeah. and probably most of us in the UK have come across Rightmove, as I think for a while it was the most visited site in the UK, mm-hmm. um, hence them making lots of money. So Rightmove and Zoopla uh, basically used the platform concept uh, to help people get beyond this uh, trap of proximity and only working with people you know mm-hmm. and having everything offline uh, in sort of silos instead of online. Uh, so if you think about it, using that as the example, but more generically here, um, you had estate agents that you would go to and you'd go to your, your maybe your local estate agent. They would take a physical uh, picture of your house almost and put it in their shop window. And you were banking on the fact that their shop window was better than you going out, handing out flyers yourself uh, for advertising your house to potential buyers. And so they would sit there and hope that the right person happens to walk past the estate agent window and decide that the house was was suitable. Um, and likewise, if you're looking on the other side of the transaction for a house, you had to hope that you walked past the right estate agent's window to find you know, the house or, or apartment of your dreams. Um, right move Zoopla, all of a sudden, all of those estate agents all over the country can be viewed in one go by those people who are trying to find their dream house. You can search, you can filter, you can look at floor plans, you can look at local schools, checkers. I'm not doing a sales pitch for right now, by the way. They're doing all right without you actually, Ben. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so so those guys obviously have a much better experience from the the buying or or letting side. But equally, the estate agents, uh, you know, get way more intelligence about the, the deals that they're placing. They can get uh, that information out to way more potential buyers uh, than just those that happen to walk past their window. Um, and, and in the in the reinsurance industry, it's very similar. The, the, the same idea applies not so much uh, with a, a local national level, but almost on a global level, you have the situation where the shop window might be the London market or, or the Lamb pub or Leadenhall or whatever it might be. Um, you know, you, you're holding up your risk and or walking it around Lloyd's and hoping you see people there. Or if you're in Bermuda, hoping you meet the people there or people you happen to have met at a conference somewhere in the world. But it doesn't get that true exposure that could get it the best possible capacity uh, if you were able to network more efficiently with people uh, all over the world. And then again, tying into that, the digital aspects that are key to the risk. So the equivalent of the floor plan, the equivalent of all of the photos, etc. So the underlying deal data that we capture in analytics, having that in an instantly shareable digital location and not lost in a spreadsheet and an email somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, having uh, the deal data, so what's the actual structure of the contract, always to hand so you can just open up that deal and see it all there rather than digging through you know, the folders from a year ago or trying to find some colleagues who's left notes that are buried away somewhere, mm-hmm. getting it onto a platform uh, really transforms the way that you can manage a portfolio of deals uh, rather than sort of one at a time manual yeah. administration. Sure, sure. And I think maybe your right move um, example has a sort of benefit of answering kind of part my second question, which is 
meant to be a bit provocative, but um, oh, sorry. Them, you've, you've, you've crushed it because you've because you've, I was going to say, does does this risk making things like platforms? Does it, does it risk making the role of like the broker obsolete over time, um, or you know? But then looking at your point, does it just mean that it sort of slightly changes the tools that people use, and they just have to add more value? So estate agents have to do. You know they do VR work walkthroughs and all of that stuff now that they didn't used to do. Um, is that the way you kind of see the market evolving? Yeah, we we think the we like the analogy of the home purchasing one quite a lot because you have this the importance and the magnitude of that decision mm-hmm. and the and the importance that the role of that intermediary plays. So for the insurance companies, you know even the largest ones who buy you know 30, 40, 50 reinsurance programs a year their collective reinsurance spend is the biggest expenditure that they have every year. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that when you're buying or selling a home, could you remove a little bit of the cost by going around an estate agent? Possibly, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. but do you really want to? In a lot of ways, right? This, there's a huge amount of risk that you're taking on. If I just have my house and you can, I'm just selling it directly to you, there's always this risk of what's unknown and undiscovered. And this, this professional who sits in the middle to sort of help manage and navigate the whole experience is a really important one and one that we want to sort of empower and give them a toolkit to make sure they're getting the widest audience and the best potential pricing and all of those things, but by no means pulling them out of the equation because the role that they you know provide and the services they provide are immensely valuable to both the buyer and the seller. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think it's, it's a really important one because with that being their full-time role, they see so much of the market. You know, you, the understanding of what are what pricing trends are doing, what purchasing structures are doing, what's happening is is profound because that person's job is only to sit within that within that um, in, in that intermediary position. Mm-hmm. Where if you remove them, you know, the client's only making a you know a handful or a dozen of these purchases. They're removed from this bigger vision of what's happening because they've, they've lost all that insight. So we don't think that the role of the intermediary is going away anytime soon. I think you're exactly right that they will be forced to lean into where they really add value and they will be, you know, further and further, like, are you, there'll be, there'll be challenges around improving the value that they add, but I think it's a significant role that they still play in them, but they still provide a huge amount of value there. Because mm. is that is that where the bulk of the competition in this space comes from? Because a lot of the kind of larger brokers are have, have built some of their own solutions in this space, or or they or they're, at least they're trying to. Is, is that mm. is that where you see the bulk of the competition in in your space? A, a little bit. I th- if you if you use that right move example, it's the difference between a platform and a website, mm. right? So yes, Hilton has a website. Yes, you can go on to it to book a hotel, or yes you know, um, uh, Foxton's for the UK listeners have a website, you can go on there and look for homes, but the value in the sort of aggregation of those, and not to say that, you know, it's a pure aggregation play, but the value in being able to go to one place and seeing a, a, an array of risks or properties or hotels, it allows you to find what's really right for you at, at the different points in time. Mm. And the aggregation piece doesn't, mean we're driving purely towards price it means we're we're driving towards the best option for you right mm-hmm. you're not looking for the cheapest price in the area but the one with the, the most bedrooms the one that you know has a pool or the biggest garden or whatever sort of your family has identified as the biggest need 
reinsurance operates in much the same way. Price is an, is an important factor for sure. And, you know, as you have increasing capital coming in other things, you know, price is always a big discussion point, but it's not the only one, right? Mm. Quality of paper and partnership his, history and all these other factors play a significant role as well. So when you look at what the big brokers are doing with an in-house platform, that's one platform for one party, but you know, these, in, these underwriters want to be able to source their deals in one place. They want to get the efficiency of, you know, integrating with the solution and getting all the data into their systems, you know, once. And if you just have it where everyone has their own system, you know, we're not really solving the problem that we've, we've come to expect the solution to look like from our personal lives. Yeah, sure. I, I'm glad you made that leap, actually, because that's something that I <laughs> I feel like I'm shouting into a storm when I usually bring up. But I, I sort of make this point quite often that you, you can't ignore the impact of your uh, engagement with technology in your personal life, in your um, corporate professional life. So if you, if you hear the word insurance, your insurance experience with your personal lines motor insurer has to impact how you think about insurance, even if you're a sort of PNC, um, you know, global PNC um, professional, because you go, okay, how are Tesco able to do things like take the photo of damage and then pay out instantly on claims? Um, and we seem to be so far behind on our kind of technology. There's a technology debt that we're not able to ca catch up. And it doesn't seem, to, in my mind, it doesn't matter that you're comparing two things unfairly it's just not the way your brain works. My brain's not thinking they're going, well, that's not fair. These are, these have different factors. My brain's just going technology. And it's the same with Amazon. You know, Amazon's always kind of the classic example of, of something that's built so much for the customer. Um, um, but you're, you're one of the few people that have come on and kind of just gone, yeah, no, it, it, it does impact how you kind of personally, it's your expectations, I think, is the term that you just used. And I think that's exactly, absolutely right. I think I'd add to that as well. You know, it's it's almost too easy in the commercial insurance space and in the reinsurance space as well to look at personal lines insurance uh, as where they should be hitting. But actually, that's still quite a low bar. Um, you know, we've got this whole gamut of experiences we have in our personal daily lives, you know, be it using social networks, be it using uh, all sorts of strange apps that have been invented over time. Uh, and, and we shouldn't rule those out as things that could impact and, and really change the way that we experience uh, our careers as well. And there might actually be some things that we can do in commercial and reinsurance uh, that you couldn't do in personal lines insurance because of you know various restrictions they have that, that maybe we don't. Um, mm. So yeah, it's, it's really exciting when you look at all of these angles. I, I remember uh, when I was at Lloyd's, actually, we had this really funny um, innovation sort of seminar question thing that, that went on we, we would just launch i think the the innovation pillar of, of lloyd's new strategic pillars was way back in 2014 or 2015 mm -hmm. um and and they said right digital innovation happening everywhere except here what do we do um and so we made this giant mind map of you know all of the different things we'd see and, and then trying to apply the same context uh, concepts to lloyd's and it was like Okay, how about eBay for risk? How about Amazon for risk? How about mm -hmm. just taking any kind of app or concept we could find and, and seeing how it fitted in there? I remember even looking at Tinder for risk. Everything, you know, potentially had a, an application. And, and it was just thinking through what, what have they applied to bring supply to demand and to efficiently help match them? 
uh, and taking that forwards. And, and I think it, it's, yeah, it certainly helped us think about how we can build our model. I think one great example, Jared, I don't know if you want to talk about the, the open table model, because there's another great one, restaurants. That's a thing that inspired what we do. Yeah, it's when you think about how you kickstart the marketplaces and the models, mm -hmm. open tables, open tables, a brilliant one. They went to um, the restaurants themselves and gave them sort of really helpful booking software they could manage on their own. And it was great for managing reservations and everything else. And then as they got those restaurants on board, they started opening it up to this much wider audience of potential you know, diners back when such a thing was allowed in this country, um, yeah, yeah, right. the good old days. Um, <laughs> but then they sort of seeded it with all these different, you know, companies where that was on its own useful, right? It was useful for me as a restaurant owner to take a phone call and use the open table software that they gave me mm. to do this. But what then happened was we could turn this on and not only take reservations that sort of came inbound, but build that sort of right move model where I could then post my my uh, restaurant up in the cloud and sort of have everyone be able to search and filter for it. And then it became really powerful because they also then allowed companies to uh, restaurants to push out promotions, to push out, you know, they have a lull on Tuesdays and, and Wednesdays. Mm -hmm. So now they have 20% off at their restaurants on mm -hmm. those two. On the, and they gave this way to really optimize the utilization of those restaurants off the back of what was a valuable software in its own right. So mm. when we think about what our product is doing and, and where we start, you know, it's how do we build that first version where it's valuable for brokers to use our platform and the, for the network and for the clients to create their data packs. Like it's valuable in its own right. And as more people get plugged in, you know, servicing that becomes increasingly valuable as we open up this network effect component and open up to a much wider audience mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. the more companies that come through and then it all starts to connect to each other and everyone benefits in the aggregate. Mm -hmm. No, that's really interesting. I, I, I love the fact that, um, and I wouldn't have switched you to, <laughs> don't want to be rude about uh, Lloyd's, but I'm, I'm, quite su I'm surprised how wide you threw that open. And I think that's, for me, some of the challenges that we've seen in the sector and why we haven't seen as much innovation. Um, but it happens in every sector. I mean, I, I'm... Um, everyone, I've got a terrible website. <laughs> Hands up, I have a terrible website. It's because I'm having a new one built. And the first thing the, the web designer came to me and said, oh, which other headhunting search firm websites do you like? And I was like, none of them. And why do they have to look like that? You know, that's, you know, it's like, what are the best websites out there? What do they look like? You know, what are, you know, maybe it's service firms or, or my client base, you know, insurtechs, what, what are they building it like? And it's like framing your world with just like, what does innovation look like within insurance? And, and, and to your point, Ben, I think it's absolutely the wrong thing to do. And it's like, how can we, how can we kind of bring in the best? Um, do you think there's a little bit of like that with talent as well? Because that's an observation I would make is that we still do this thing of going, oh, we want the best technology people or vet technologists must have insurance experience. I see on so many adverts and I kind of go, why? Yeah, <laughs> it might be naive, but often I think, why? No, I, I think that's really true. I think you need the, the optimum kind of pairing um, of the, the, the execution piece, I think is where you want that, that brilliance and uh, openness of mind to doing things in all sorts of different ways, mm. uh, but based on a problem that's really well-defined by expert users. So um, Jared and I had great fun when, when it was just Jared and me uh, on the, the sort of business side in the very early days. 
mm. and we were getting our first, we had our, our co-founding CTO, Jason, uh, and our first few engineers joining the team who had no reinsurance background whatsoever. Um, and then we'd been coached uh, by a few people. I think we'd been through a few different programs and things um, to, to make sure we weren't over specifying, you know, what they should build, but rather making sure they really understood the problem and got inside the mind of the user. Um, so we would be articulating these, these user stories that were basically very, very closely defined around the problem. So our broker character who typically does this in their day is stuck because they want to, you know, contact all of these different counterparties and provide this to them and get this back from them and so on. Obviously I'm paraphrasing quite a lot. Yeah, um, of course, yeah. And then, but then just sort of have, passing that to the engineers and going like, have at it, you know, what, give us five options and let's talk about all the different options for how we can solve this efficiently mm -hmm. and seeing that come back. I think other efforts, you know, in a more traditional development cycle would have gone through over specification to some extent where, you know, it has to specifically follow this micro diagram of, of interactions and things. But, but if you do that, you miss out on actually finding better ways of mm. achieving a solution to the same problem. And you forget what the original problem was uh, and, and end up stuck down a very well-defined avenue. And I think that's actually one of the things that has made, uh, has actually helped the need uh, that we identified early on for a reinsurance specific platform. Because what we found was many of the insurance focused platforms had been over-specified for insurance. And then when you tried to turn them on for reinsurance, they just fell, fell over on their faces because they had over-specified kind of pathways that had to be followed that just didn't apply in some cases for reinsurance or missed yeah. pathways that you needed and didn't have any flexibility built in uh, to the way that they worked. Um, and so we've seen people trying to wedge reinsurance deals through those and going, it just, it's just not how, it's not the problem set I'm facing. I don't understand why there's this whole section for me to fill in. Mm -hmm. I don't understand you know, why I have to even engage with this piece. Uh, and the bit that I actually want isn't there. Um, <laughs> you really have to make sure that basically whatever's being built is actually responding to the problem set of the users and their pain points. Um, but in terms of the creativity, yeah, you need talent that's just going to think outside the box and find a really effective way to tackle that problem. And then obviously test and test and iterate to check that it actually is solving their problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I, I think it can be easy as well to hide behind um, the language of your of your target market, so the language of insurance, and just say that oh, other people don't understand. But it's that you can that's a defensive kind of attitude, and it's like well, they don't understand, but I, I, it's not that hard to explain. That so let's explain it to them and then see what they can come up with because it's the classic thing of you know, there's no point hiring really smart people and then telling them what to do in their specialist mm -hmm. area. Um, I think I think balancing that is really hard in our industry because there's a lot of things that are really counterintuitive and you know we we don't do things in in a certain way but not because we've always done it this way and it's always been managed what you when you're trying to take an industry that for 300 years has been done in a completely one-off bespoke fashion like every contract written up from scratch and like no rules really apply and there's always this sort of you can solve any problem with how you write the contract up and now trying to move towards purely digitizing that, you know, it, it adds some, some complexity towards, you can't build it in such a way that offers pure like creativity around it because it needs to still, it needs to still map broadly to how the industry wants to operate mm -hmm. at the same time, not going out and saying, 
And I think a, a way a lot of these companies have built tech historically is they've said, here's the exact problem and solution, the rigid framework by which you have to have, the, you know, been, been outlined that you see these flow diagrams that are like hundreds and hundreds of steps because they've given them, you know, no wiggle room at any point. But then the second anything comes up in the flow, it, it sort of breaks if it does, they've not built any flexibility into it. So yeah. trying to balance, you know, a creative approach to problem solving while still supporting the fact that certain things need to happen a certain way, or once this is done, you can't do that. But there's always, you know, nuance mm. to that, which needs to be sort of addressed as well, which is, is the tough balance, I think. Yeah, and and, and I feel, I've spoke to obviously lots of insurtechs and, and on this podcast and outside of it, and and that there does seem to be a, um, a balance of getting, you know, market leading tech people to help build some a solution, and then the right level of insurance knowledge. And and you guys are obviously coming from the insurance world or reinsurance world. It, it's a huge benefit. Um, I suppose you're your kind of nervousness may be around, you know, you had this, it's, it's lucky you found a CTO, put it that way. <laughs> Otherwise you're going, uh, you've just got this army of engineers that you know not, not, not what to do with. So do you think this could have been built, you know, your business could supersede have come from people that, you know, just started looking for problems in the reinsurance market and they would have come up with this? Or do you think it's inherent in the success of the model that you come from that world? I, I think it is inherent. And I, I don't think it's, it's, I, us specifically you know who had some brilliant insight at all i think it's more that we had experienced the pain and understood the personalities and you know constantly checked in on those those groups and those individuals to understand what people actually cared about uh, we see almost it seems every other week that uh, you know a, a new startup has popped up somewhere in the world out of you know a university or out of uh, an adjacent industry where they've worked out that Theoretically, the economics of the reinsurance industry would work better if it was all turned into a giant automated auction. Um, but you don't want to be the ones to try and persuade the industry of that, right? That's <laughs> not going to go down especially well. Uh, and it massively undervalues you know, the fact that fundamentally reinsurance is a promise to pay and people want to look each other in the eye and be reassured that this contract that you're agreeing here is based on... Uh, when things you know get as bad as they possibly can get you being able to rely on you know often many many counterparties to deliver on the promise that they have made um and i think necessarily there there are so many little subtleties and little things that have to be taken into account as part of that i uh, most emotional part of the relationship but then with it so many other subtleties around styles and ways of doing business that have become standard i personally I and mean, this is a nerd moment for me. I, I love insurance law. I love, love it to pieces. I've got Bird's Modern Insurance Law on my shelf next to me. Uh, Jared knows this. I always go on about funny stories uh, in the space. And uh, yeah, anyway, um, there's, there's so many nuances and so many cases that have happened where when it actually comes down to trying to work out whether, whether claims and things should be paid on, on these big reinsurance deals, it comes down to arguments about convention, about like, oh, yeah, but when somebody scribbles on the piece of paper like X, uh, that's because they're accepting it, even though it's just a meaningless squiggle. Kind of, and and you, you get all these sorts of weird generational rules and understandings and, and things that are not at all codified, they're not set in stone. Um, and trying to jump from that to a world where everything is rigidly codified, commoditized, and cut up into little 
like specified chunks that can be sent, you know, anywhere via computer is just not at all the character of our industry. Mm. Um, and I don't think where many people in the industry would be supportive of it going. I think where people actually are supportive of it going is how do we still have that decision-making uh, power, that ability to build relationships, that ability to get control over our data and our reinsurance protection, um, but in a way where we don't have to do all the really boring bits, the bit that's sort of rekeying or you know sitting and waiting for modeling files to download for hours, uh, carrying around bundles of paper, you know, all, all of these pieces that just don't really make sense in the modern world. How do we how do we get rid of those bits and give ourselves superpowers when it comes to great, I've got 50 different reinsurers on this program uh, and I need to send them all an email advising them of their signed lines. Uh, can I just press that with a button that sends it to them all at once or do I have to write 50 emails? It's this sort of thing that is the first logical jump. And I think over time we'll see more and more steps and more and more optional features that let you play with some of the, you know, the, these exciting new things. Definitely there's bits of the market that auctions and things will be a real hit with. And there, there'll be bits of the market where there are new concepts we haven't even thought of yet uh, that will be a huge hit. But initially, at least, we've got so many things we can fix uh, that people would really value and that would really change their daily lives uh, to bring it into line with, as we said again, those daily digital experiences that we so value now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think in an industry like insurance, um, there's a a window by which you can be successful in, in setting up something different. I think if you're too early, you, you haven't seen enough and there's, an, there's you have too many blind spots into like, oh, why would someone do it this way? I just thought this radical new model that I thought of when I was at university would just transform this regulated industry. And if you, and if you pass that window, then you're too jaded and you get into this sort of rigid framework we discussed earlier where, well, it has to be this ex- only this singular exact way because I've seen the 100,000 cases that this, you know, where this, this one example happens. And, and you have to have that be in that window where you know enough to navigate the nuance of the space, but you're still willing enough, uh, willing enough to be creative and challenge where there's opportunities to do something different where you go, well, that piece has to be the same, but this piece can change. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know and what can, can and can't work, I think there's a, there's a window there that, that allows you to, to do that. And I think when you look at solutions that have been tried and done before, it's very glaring people who've fallen in the, you don't quite know enough yet category and people who have gone, ah, this is exactly what I'd expect after, you know, 35 or 40 years of, of an, as an underwriter, this is what you'd look for or something. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, I think solutions built by the big incumbents fall into the ladder because they start with the senior leadership team building out their digital strategy and then they go to their in-house IT teams and they sort of build out what this needs to do and look like and it's unsurprising that they've the solutions that have come out of that haven't been too transformative and haven't really captured the imagination and the excitement of the industry mm. because they've come from even though they're still in the industry they're sort of they've passed their window of creativity in a lot of ways mm. so I think mm-hmm. it was quite fortunate just when Ben and I started thinking about this, we were kind of in that we'd spent a number of years as practitioners and getting it, but we're still thinking about problems creatively enough and looking at other things in our day-to-day lives that were like, 
what if it was a bit more like that though? Not every, not all entirely like that, right? Mm. Not the entire Tinder model for risk, but <laughs> there's these other, there's these other components that would make this process way, way easier, but we have to make sure we take this thing into account mm. in that, in that kind of process. Yeah. And I, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I think like um, you have to be really careful to stop you don't ever want to lose that childlike quality that I always think everyone should keep. And, and the childlike quality I'm talking about is being not afraid to fail and asking why, you know, the, the classic kid just going, why, why, why? But as an adult, like we don't, we get into a, an industry and we're in it 10 years. We stop asking why we do things sometimes. And then you look at things. I mean, I do that in my own, my world is, is very reflective of what we're talking about, you know, the services that we offer that still when people are hiring senior people they want to see them face to face ideally that's what they would like to do now obviously we're doing stuff over zoom um but there are bits of my role which are pointless and 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 admin heavy and you just think if those things need to go away um and i think that's in most industry but you're sort of very careful not to ask someone challenged me on something the other day I, I did a proposal for a client and they said i put some time frames in and different processes and, and they said is this fit for a startup a hyper growth startup and they weren't they weren't saying it was or wasn't um they were just challenging me on it and i thought sadly i don't i don't know if i've asked that question of myself enough and 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 so you just have to ask why sadly i probably fall into the category of too jaded to change now so i need to i need to <laughs> i need to get i need to get someone that's uh, you know um got more innovative ideas on board but no i think that's i think that's kind of universally a challenge and just just the last point on the kind of tech issue i think one of the big incumbents one of the challenges that someone else raised was if you think about the tech role within a large incumbent it's generally speaking about maintaining legacy and making them work and, and you know, making all these systems that shouldn't talk to each other, talk to each other. And, and that's a skill. It's also a very different skill set to sort of blank sheet of paper, creative tech innovation. Um, yeah. And, and I, think, I think that's interestingly, not just a tech thing as well. I think mm. um, True. Yeah. because of, especially here in London, I, the nature of, Lloyd's being and the London market being such and I guess the whole industry in a way being such an old industry um, the attitude towards the roles of the people in the industry have fallen more into the custodian kind of role almost you know curator at times um, rather than you know change maker or pioneer uh, type attitude and, and when I think about uh, my days as an underwriter for example I didn't do it for very long I thank goodness to some extent um, but but there, you know, there was very much this, these are the clothes you should wear that, you know, we had certain shoes that yeah, you weren't yeah. allowed to wear and haircuts yeah. that like mine currently that would, you know, got me kicked out of the room, I think, if I, <laughs> if I tried to go in, you know, that you were allowed to loosen your ties on very hot days to be allowed. And the, 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 the culture, um, historically, and, and up until very recently, I would say was not challenged. It was a, a culture of conformity, of doing things the way they had always been done. Uh, and maintaining, as you say, um, not just the systems, uh, the legacy systems in the back end, but actually the the people and the processes, and, and keeping to uh, what was, you know, this. I don't want to throw around too many cliches, but this old boys' club that had very um, traditional ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. I think only recently what we're starting to see um, 
is this real shift? I, I, I did a Lloyd's article the other day. I, went, I wish I could have done a, you know, a whole extra 10 pages on culture, but the change that we've seen in culture around the London market in the last uh, you know, five years has been huge. It's been enormous in terms of actually stepping back and, and challenging and saying, but why are we so insistent on maintaining the status quo exactly as is? You know, why is uh, a junior underwriter judged based on you know, how much uh, binder removal they can do per minute or a broker based on how good they are at holding a place in the queue or uh, either based on how many pints they can withstand uh, after work. <laughs> is, is, is this the model that we want to continue to assess uh, talent in our industry? I, I think finally we're starting to, as you say, bring in more people from more diverse uh, industries, backgrounds, etc. To actually give the industry a bit of a kick and say, yeah. "Come on, let's let's think about what's actually going to give everybody who works here and everything that we're trying to achieve uh, a much better experience." To so I, I'm I'm delighted, frankly, by how much things are starting to change, and really optimistic about where they're going. I and I hope that that translates to the tech side as well, so that people who do have the misfortune currently of working in big corporate IT teams will soon be very fortunate to be doing so because they'll. But stop calling them IT teams and start calling them tech teams. Startups like like Superseed. Yeah, no, that, I completely agree with that. Um, yeah, entirely. I, I literally was laughing as you're saying because I, I wrote something about there was a whole thread going on LinkedIn today about the article that um, Lloyd's have just announced they're going to relax um, uh, the dress code and and people were saying you know being put to the back of the queue because they had tan leather shoes on and I, I had the front pocket of my uh, shirt ripped off me because I wasn't supposed to wear pockets on shirts yeah. but I didn't know because I'm a working class boy from Essex and my dad my dad was an engineer and the, the story I, I remember going back to my dad and going I, I need to get shirts without pockets and he just went to me but where do you put your pen because <laughs> he's a, he's an engineer so that's all he cared about um, but um, I wanted to kind of shift the conversation and talk to you about in, investment because that's a it's a really popular topic um you guys have done two rounds of raising, is that right? Um, one quite recently as well. Is that relatively recently? Um, About a year ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, was your insurance experience particularly USP from investors? Um, it was one question, and secondly, just kind of how did you find that process? Um, did you? What, what was the level of frogs you had to kiss before you got to the, the prints? I, I always want to kind of know the volume because it sounds like some sort of pretty arduous process, but some people don't find it that way. But It's, it's a really interesting one, um, especially for a startup in the reinsurance space, mm -hmm. because we always, start, we always start every investor conversation with, have you ever heard of reinsurance and how much do you know about this? And, and then, and then they'll say like, Oh, we know a lot about this. It's, you know, I have insurance and for my car, You're like, okay, so nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and you go from there. Um, but for us, there's, there's a couple of things really early on that made it more challenging. And the, in the earliest days, um, first is our, our commitment to being independent. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you're starting with a reinsurance proposition, is a select number of companies in the world who know what you're talking about. And we essentially ruled out all of them by saying we we're going to go independent. So, you know, uh -huh. all the big corporate venture capital firms, you know, Axis, Strategic Firm, and mm -hmm. all the others, he said, we're not going to take any money from any of them. 
So now we're going into the investment sort of world with a really nuanced proposition for a nuanced industry and a nuanced section of a nuanced industry mm-hmm. and trying to articulate to them what we're trying to build. And, and this is where the, the Zillow, Zoopla, right move model really helped us help to articulate that message. Um, once we got through that first round, we've been, you know, had some incredible angel investors and then we got support from um, Seedcamp really early on, mm-hmm. as well as um, MMC Ventures, which isn't related to, to Marsha McLennan. Um, and then we got some early traction. And then from there, now we're talking to investors about our bigger vision, what we want to do in the industry. And, and the conversation has shifted. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's easier a bit now as we have these, these conversations. But really early on, it, it was hard because you're trying to, are, to convince them or it, educate them on what the industry is and what, what the problem that you're solving, how it actually exists. Two, as we sort of mentioned a bit earlier, why your specific approach to it was the right one rather than what if instead you just radically transformed it and did this completely different thing, like helping to articulate the reasoning behind why our strategy was what it was um, and going from there. So that first part was more difficult, but, but now they've seen the team grow. They've seen our hiring capabilities and who we're bringing on um, and our momentum and traction in the industry. And, and that's helping uh, as we go forward. Mm. Did you, um, was there any feedback to your early pitches that kind of changed the product, fed into the product um, at all? Um, yeah, I was, because I imagine it would, but I, I, I'm an anxious person full of, <laughs> and I, if someone says something that, and I'd be like, oh no, I better change it instantly. But, but you, you guys must have to be fairly robust to kind of rebuff those if they're inaccurate, but, but obviously open-minded enough that, these are people that potentially could invest. Maybe you need to take it on board. Yeah, definitely. It was it was it was a really valuable experience. I think in itself in the early days, um, because we started off. I, I, you know, even before the, the sort of early stage funds uh, got involved, I, we were going around our friends and mentors in the industry uh, to see if we could get any investment from them. And you know, our, our early angel investors. I think we had. Uh, total something like 19 uh, independent individuals from all over the world and all over the industry um, who we had to convince basically that we were going to do something with their money Um, and they were all experts you know in in their own particular niches around the industry and could really challenge us uh, on on various pieces which which is a great you know tribute to them that they still invested at the end of that so we must have said something right Um, but we're eternally grateful to them obviously for giving us the fighting chance that eventually now has matured into an ever stronger um, company that we've, that we've become today as Superseed. Um, it gave us pre uh, going out there, you know, with some giant vision of how Superseed will conquer the reinsurance world, you know, some real rigorous testing of, yeah, but you're going to come up against this hurdle. And, you know, in my company, we would never sign up if X was like that. And, you know, from my experience of 40 years as, you know, treaty underwriter, I would want this to be solved before I touched that with a barge pole. And, and going through that really rigorous process, you know, I'm not going to pretend that every single person we spoke to invested, you know, we probably spoke to a very large number of people in these roles uh, who all gave us something to take away. And, and that really helped us to refine uh, the, the overall vision, but also the steps that we would take and the strategy we would take along the way to building up the pieces uh, that would get us there. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the hardest things in, in sort of the jobs that we have is having enough of a North Star and enough of a commitment towards what you want to do and why, sort of a reliance on first principles to take an enormous amount of feedback on board and then know what feedback you should definitely action and what feedback you sort of put a pin in and keep an eye on and what feedback you go, yep, that I see why you would have said that, why you think that, but we're not going to take that approach mm-hmm. and, and navigating those things. It's, there's, there's no formula to that at all, right? It's purely based on sort of this broader vision. And I think one of the things that sort of the team talks about a lot as we, you know, especially now as we, as we scale and as we get more and more users coming on and we get more and more points of feedback, having a, a commitment towards what our bigger vision looks like and why we wouldn't do something or would do something or is that's a hard thing to do. And I think, so really early on, especially with the investors, it's, it's holding course to a degree, but always being willing to, to take on feedback and listen to things, but, but having a general idea of what the end goal, what is, mm-hmm. um, and trying to use that feedback as, is this supportive or not? And how, how risky is it if we, t- you know, ignore this advice? Like what is the risks that we're taking on if, if they're right and we're not? So you're always trying to balance these, these points of feedback. But I think I was talking to an, an, another founder yesterday and we were talking about how much he should iterate his pitch deck and iterate following investor meetings. Mm-hmm. And it was a similar kind of answer. I was saying there's, you always want to take the feedback on board and you always want to continue to tweak it. But if you're, if you're constantly updating your deck based on what the previous investor had said, you're always going into the newest investor with the deck purely bespoke to the previous person you spoke yeah, to. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and you're always yeah. like one. So, so you yeah. want to always go, okay, I, my, my message on pricing or the charging model or the go-to-market strategy, that might not be right. So, or it wasn't clear enough. So I'm going to sort of make some revisions there, but if they, if they say, you know, do this radically different thing and you're just constantly shifting. So you have to have enough conviction in, in your North star to, to hold course. Um, whilst being willing to to adjust along the way yeah yeah no I think that's I think that's really sage advice um yeah I can imagine it's very tempting to continue to change stuff particularly when you're sort of chasing that sweet investor cash um (laughs) what's uh I wanted to ask you this I'm conscious of time we're we're nearly approaching an hour which is unbelievable haven't even haven't even barely touched my beer um and uh it's 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 zero as well because i've become you're out of practice now (laughs) yeah i've become one of those people that's just stopped drinking down the uh, down lockdown um i wanted to ask you this and you could either answer between you because it's a bit unfair to sort of launch this on you because i I gave you no prep but i was going to ask like now you're, you're you're running a business uh for the first time in 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 sort of this context um and i wanted to know what the three big learnings you've had that may have surprised you you know because you would have had lots of preconceptions about what it is to run a business and what it is to run a startup in this context but what are your three big learnings that you've had um particularly that have surprised you um but you you can cheat and do one and a half each if you like because that's a bit mean to go three each go (laughs) yeah it's, it's a good question maybe one one i would raise i guess is a a startup is for life and not just for Christmas sort of message. <laughs> you see all these, these wonderful uh, films that, that give you a glorious montage of people working hard for about five minutes and then brilliant, you know, billionaire success uh, shortly yep. thereafter. Yep. Um, 
but the the crushing responsibility of of what you're actually undertaking um is amazing like, like again it makes it thrilling it makes it you know everything you're doing incredibly worthwhile uh, and meaningful but but it's also a lot of pressure and a lot of expectation that just keeps on mounting mm-hmm. i remember you know that the first time we got an investor you know an angel investor to give some money to us and it, it wasn't you know a spectacular amount of money but that was suddenly you know responsibility and then when you know a f- a f- about a few months later effectively you know we could add an extra digit to that so we were getting into much higher numbers um, and then another zero on the end of that a year later, it escalates very quickly. And you're like, wow, people are putting a lot of uh, faith in us to go out there and get this job done. But equally, uh, you get the responsibility of the people in your team that you realize it's not just a case of, you know, well, we're going to go and build a startup and then we'll, we'll go and get loads of people and we'll go and solve this challenge. You're actually, you know, an employer and you're creating careers or, you know, helping people grow their careers individually you're supporting families you're helping people make lifestyle choices and mm-hmm. supporting them through those there's so much more uh, to this than than just you know pursuing a cool side project it really does take you to go full in like i personally i mean i'm somebody who typically i think before we started super seed was was very much somebody who would do lots of things at once uh, so you know loads of sport and music on the side and and all sorts of things i've dropped almost all of that uh, <laughs> over the course of the startup so I, I feel guilty yeah. any minute of my day that i'm not spending on super seed feels like i'm betraying you know so many people at once whether it's the people who work for us whether it's the people who've invested for us and I, i'm happy to do that you know it's a, it's a trade-off that i willingly accept but you Certainly, it came as a change of expectation. You know, once you actually got going, just how much is is riding uh, on you? Uh, mm-hmm. so that's my first one. I'll, I'll I, let lo- Jared... I love that. I love that. Jared's got to follow it with an equally <laughs> snappy title. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't compete with the, the dogs are not just for Christmas a parody. Um, I would I would lean into that a little bit. I think Ben raises an incredibly important point, and um. I know Emrit was on your show a couple of weeks ago and he stole mm-hmm. one of my favorite lines from Dustin Moskovitz, uh, who's one of the founders of, of Facebook, mm-hmm. but around, you should only do this if, if you have to, mm-hmm. because it's not just the stress that, you know, that we undertake from that perspective. And I remember the moment where um, we were sort of raising angel money so we could quit our jobs, right? I think it's running a startup is either for rich men or poor men, right? If you're, if you're sort of making your, making your way through life, it's not, it's not a job you can really, you know, jump out and do. But I remember the impact when our CTO sort of was like, calls me and he's like, I've, I've quit my job now. I was like, oh, wow. So you have no income. And we have a few investors who verbally committed to giving us money yeah, and yeah. like, and the weight that that had. Um, but I read a really good article the other day and it was about, um, the partners of founders mm-hmm. and, and not just the weight that we carry, but like the burden we put on others in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's something that resonates with me a lot. And, you know, Ben is fabulous and he holds, he holds me to account. Like when I'm on holiday to be like, you need to not be on Slack right now. Like, mm-hmm. cause, because it is, you do have this sense of guilt to be available and make sure that you can touch people. But it's, so it's trying to balance not just the team and the investors and people who sort of are relying on us in that way, but at the same time, the people who rely on us sort of in our personal lives mm-hmm. and, and threading that needle. I think the weight of that is, is quite heavy. And, 
you know, and Amber was quite funny on, on, on your show, but he was talking about how there's all this, you know, dreams of glory and yachts and again, the montage. So you work hard for three years and you get, it's like, it's, you know, that, that does, you know, <laughs> that isn't taken into account very much. Um, another big learning that I've had, it's hard, it's, it's hard to distill it down into a couple. I think the magnitude and the speed by which we are learning is profound. Mm-hmm. The other week, um, we were going through, I don't know why, we were going through an old pitch deck back when, <laughs> I think I was telling Ben about this the other day, um, and we were sort of flipping through it uh, on a Friday night over beers, and, and it was this sort of 35-day, for 35-page um, intro pitch deck to what the risk book at the time yeah. uh, was and how what our model was and how it's going to work. And, and that deck is 17, 18 months old, and it was unbelievable how little we knew. Like it was comical looking at our thinking from then and what we thought it would do and how it would work and all these different things. And when we look back like on quarterly reports or, you know, on a yearly basis, just the, the size of the shift in not just where the business has come and what's what we've done, but how much our thinking has changed around a huge array of components from culture to finance, to fundraising, to, to everything else. And I think they always sort of talk about how, you know, it's this sort of, it's, it's good for people who are just aggressively learning all the time, mm-hmm. but, but the steepness of that learning curve, I think is, is something that is, is, is more surprising than I thought. Like I, we'd, we'd read a lot and we studied a lot in advance of doing this and we're kind of like, okay, we have got, we've got a strategy now. Right. And, you know, it's, it's that classic, your plan is, what's the, what's the, what's the um, phrase? It, the best strategy falls down at the first play, at the first sign of combat or something to that effect. Um, <laughs> I always just think of the Mike Tyson one, which is like, <laughs> is the punch ev- in the face. yeah, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and I think that applies to life and business really aptly because um, yeah. one thing I was thinking, because obviously, you know, I, I work, I always say I work for myself because I, you know, it's it's just me. But there was a point where I grew and I had a team, and um, you know, it was the sense of imposter syndrome was that you'd sort of you go out there and you go right, come and work for me, and then people say yes, and you're like, oh wow, uh, okay, yeah, sure, this is a great idea, this is what I want, um, and then the responsibility that you know Ben was talking about, and um, yeah, but there's this constant sense of having to have confidence in what you're doing having to have that north star as you said but um i don't know anyone that doesn't have that sense of imposter syndrome at times when they're just you're you know you're the you're the duck on the pond and you you you, the legs are going crazy underneath and you have to kind of act calm um and i always think that seems to be one of the biggest challenges because you are in uncharted territory right you You've, you've been working in the insurance industry and um and now you're out here on your own and the decisions sit with you Mm-hmm. Ben, do you have a third one? I know we've given you sort of yeah, we've sold one now. and a half. Maybe it's still, maybe it's still <laughs> one and a half now. There's, there's, there's one that, that comes to mind that I'll, I'll come on to in a second. But I wanted to pick up just on the end of the point that you made there. Um, I think in many ways we've been lucky with the industry that we're in largely, and, and with the community that's come around Seed the Seed, partly because of the need for it, but also just because of I think people's excitement around the mission and, and what we're trying to achieve. Um, we're not alone in many ways. I, you know, that's the thing that gets us through my third point, which was going to be 
my goodness, it's a roller coaster. Um, like <laughs> Jared and me calling you know we have these sort of weekend calls or you know evening calls when we've got through all of the various bits of the day where you know some monumental at the time uh, situation has happened um, which which changes the very nature of our expectations for what should happen a day from now a week from now a month from now a year from now um, and you learn to to sort of ride the roller coaster and to almost expect that it's going to drop suddenly and any decision you, you take with anticipation that you know it could launch you into the sky or it could send you plunging down and you've, you've got to be braced for that um, and make sure that you're, you're ready to keep the plates spinning and I think the the way that we've survived that largely has been through the community that we've had around us be it the investors the the angel investors in particular who've always been there as sort of guiding lights and close advisors to help us along the way whether it's been the under 35s reinsurance group and the under 40s reinsurance group were incredible in the early days you know they came around us they gave us a voice they gave us uh, feedback and access to an ever broader community the early clients that the people at those clients who you know took time out of their day job to spend time with us to help us iterate on the solution that we were building so mm-hmm. i think without that i think and again you asked the question right at the beginning would, do you have to be from this industry? I can't imagine trying to do what we did uh, so far or what we're going to be doing going forwards in a silo. You've got to have you know, the industry around you at all times to support you, to tell you there's going to be another side to the, the roller coaster where you'll be getting up again and to be <laughs> telling you whether to turn left or right uh, as you spin round and round. So, yeah, we're not alone, but it, but it is an absolute roller coaster. And at the moment, we're on a really good upwards bit. I'm sure there'll be some other jumps and things here and there but uh yeah it's 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 great fun at the end and and, and all the way through you come out smiling so uh, yes. delighted to be riding it awesome awesome and that is a i'm going to take that as a lovely point to get off the top of the roller coaster and, and thank you guys for your for your time um because we don't want to overstay our welcome because we've, we've about hit the hour mark but um chaps thank you so much for being on the podcast i really appreciate it um um should people reach out to you um, if they're kind of interested in joining an insure tech? Um, are you guys hiring at the moment? What are your plans? Uh, I can put some links uh, below if we need be. Yeah, definitely feel free to reach out to us either in LinkedIn. Um, you can put our emails on, in the links. Um, mm-hmm. Where the team is is growing and it will be growing as we sort of scale and things. So we're always happy to, to answer questions and chat with people. Um, I personally love talking to other founders across a huge array of, of businesses. Founder chat is um, one of just sort of sharing these experiences. I think that the end of this conversation is is, a, is an impactful one. And so super happy to talk to other founders and, you know, spend time doing that. But also people from the industry who want to learn more, get involved. Um, feel free, yeah, please feel free to, to reach out. Awesome. Well, thanks, gents. I'll let you go as it is our Friday nights. So not- what that means anymore who knows um <laughs> maybe maybe we can just have a few more of these in private um but yeah, thank exactly you a, thank you once again i really appreciate your time thank you thanks alex cheers alex. cheers, cheers. cheers. <laughs>
this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email, uh, alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.